I saw this license plate yesterday, so I, I grabbed the picture real quick. It was right up here at Hilltop. Righteous, it's an interesting way to spell the word, but righteous. And, and I wouldn't have that license plate because if I had that license plate, everybody would have these great expectations about me being perfect or me doing things or me walking on water or, or something. And, and I certainly don't, don't do that. Um, but that... Is that anybody's license plate in here, by the way? Anybody? Is that, is that any of you? Uh, you know, this, this license plate really begs the question, what does that mean? What does it mean? It means you think like God. You act like God. If God showed up and did something, you would do the same thing in the same way. It's this, it's this high and lifted up from heaven way of, of living your life. And I'm so aware that there's a gap in my life there. I'm just so aware that, that I, I struggle with doing that and thinking that and, and getting there. And I want that so badly, but I don't always get there. I need, I need help. I need something, which brings me to the subject of coffee. Okay, one of my great favorite coffees these days is 8 o'clock. This is an old, old brand. This is the coffee that Moses drank. This is the coffee that's been around since the time of Abraham Lincoln. This is 8 o'clock coffee. Anybody want to try 8 o'clock coffee? 8 o'clock coffee right there. Boom. 8 o'clock coffee. Okay, that was very nice of you, sir. You were so nice, I'm going to give you one. Okay, there you go. Oh, thank you, sir. You were so nice, I'm going to give you one. All right, good job. Okay, so anybody over here, who wants 8 o'clock coffee? 8 o'clock coffee. There you go. Oh, oh, off the finger to 8 o'clock coffee. There you go. Please hand that behind you, sir. Please hand that behind you. Now you can get yours. Ready? Ready? Go. Okay, good. And it's all done. You can take this to the store and buy a box just like this. There you go. So, and then I would like that for Christmas. Okay, so, but to make coffee, you've got to have one of those fabulous Keurig machines. Is that, I'm not sure even how you say Keurig, 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 Keurig. And, uh, and it's got these little buttons on it. And these little buttons kind of tell the story of what's going on here. Of course, you got a power button. you got an auto-off button. you got a heating button. you got the add water button up top. But then you have this one button that nobody really thinks about or really likes. Some people actually tape over that. It's called D-scale. D-scale. It sounds ominous. D-scale. How many of you are D-scalers? You D-scale on a regular basis. Okay, if you're not descaling on a regular basis, your machine is crying. It's in agony. Please, somebody help me. Please, I want to give you good coffee. My daughter calls me from New York. Dad, if you're coming up, go to the kitchen bar and get this descaling solution because when you get here, we're going to descale my coffee machine. Now, she hasn't done it since she moved to New York from William and Mary, and she graduated class of 99 William and Mary. So. <laughs> It's like, it's, this was going to be something else. I, I knew. And I, I really didn't know what I was up against. But it took like several days and a lot of agony to finally get this thing descaled. But, but our lives can be like that too. We can, we can like build up all this stuff on the inside. And what do you do to descale your life? Just like with the coffee machine. It takes effort. It takes following the instructions. And if you don't do it, you will slowly feel the effects of what it's like to drink bad coffee. And one day your head will just explode. It'll just go boom. And you'll realize that I just didn't ever pay attention to the descaling button. Well, you have to do the same thing to your life or one day your life is just going to explode. It takes effort. It takes following the instructions. And the Global Leadership Summit is where I go to descale me. It's where I go to get back on track with my life so that even if I'm not going to get to righteous. 
I can sort of move in that direction. Even though I'm not always going to think like God, act like God, do everything that God wants me to do, I'm going to be at least leaning in that direction. The GLS always takes you beyond just talking about what it means to be Christian, and it takes you to the heart of what following Jesus is all about as a leader. It rocks your world with information that you have to let cleanse you, that gives you a chance to start out clean and fresh. It descales, it purifies like fire. It holds up a mirror to where you get to see your true self. It fills the gaps of your missing information and corrects your misinformation. It creates defining moments that change your future. As Bill Hybels, my friend, says, it's all about humility and learning. It's all about saying, no matter where I am at life, I have not arrived. I need to know how to be better. I need to know how to think more in the way that God would have me think. It's all about humility and learning. Let me show you what this looks like in the words of Paul, the apostle, from a couple thousand years ago. 2 Corinthians, one of my favorite verses, chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. This is kind of Paul saying, if, if he had a Keurig machine, he would say, descale the Keurig machine of your life. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test. Let's look at it the way Eugene Peterson put it in the message. Test yourselves to make sure you are solid in the faith. Don't drift along taking everything for granted. Give yourselves regular checkups. You need firsthand evidence, not mere hearsay that Jesus Christ is in you. Test it out. If you fail the test, do something about it. I hope the test won't show that we have failed, but if it comes to that, we'd rather the test showed our failure than yours. We're, ro we're rooting for the truth to win out in you. We couldn't possibly do otherwise. We don't just put up with our limitations. We celebrate them and then go on to celebrate every strength, every triumph of the truth in you. We pray hard that it will, and here it comes, we pray hard that it will all come together in your lives. We pray hard that it will all come together in your lives. And that's what being a Christian is about. We want it to all come together. We want to live it. We want to lean into it. We, we don't just want to talk about it. We don't just want to have a license plate that says righteous. We want to think like he thinks. We want to act like he acts. We want it to all come together. And one of the places that we have the opportunity to get this perspective of testing ourselves and, and examining ourselves is at the Global Leadership Summit where we can see, is it all coming together? So let me tell you what rocked my world and is going to help me change and kind of bring it all together for the future. Bill Hybels is the founder of Willow Creek Community Church. He's also the founder of the Global Leadership Summit. He's my friend. I'm going to see him in a couple of weeks when I'm out there when we talk about the summit and what worked and what didn't work and, and how it could get better. And, and in his first message... Uh, he talked about Table 18 Moments. Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels, consistently one of the highest rated speakers at the Global Leadership Summit, he is senior pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, one of America's largest churches with more than 25,000 weekly attendees at eight Chicago area congregations. The visionary founder and leader of the summit, 
Bill will once again share powerful and actionable leadership principles. His 40 years of ministry experience and giftedness in leadership continues to inspire and influence leaders around the world. So Hypos told this story of when he was in a restaurant somewhere on the other side of the world and, and what happened in just a few moments. He took the time to build into a young person's life at table 18 for just two minutes. This, this young woman who was, who was waiting on him just did a spectacular job of taking care of him. The customer service level was at the, the highest. And he was so impressed with her that he took two minutes to tell her about it. He said, you, you were just fantastic. And everything you did was just perfect. And you anticipated my needs and you met my needs. And it was just such a joy to, to meet you and to have you in this moment in my life. Little did he know the two minutes that he took rocked her world. And so she went to her room that night and she cried and she wrote him a letter. She wrote him a letter that she delivered to him the next day. And the letter was about how this just changed her. Nobody had ever done this to her ever before in her life. And then he talked about planting leadership seeds in the lives of younger people that we see leadership in and the strategic importance of that. Let me show you two pictures of young leaders that I encountered during the summit. This is Carter. Now, we, we set this up here in the Resource Center. Carter was actually out uh, doing coffee out there in the lobby. And, uh, and I walked up to him. And before I even got there, he said, could I get you a cup of coffee? And I said, yeah. I said, just half a cup. Just half a cup. And he, he poured it with great joy. And he smiled. And he handed it to me. And I could feel energy in that. And in that, just, in that short little connection, he was building into my life, not just with coffee, but with a sense of, of we're connected here. We're doing the same thing. I can see in Carter a future leader. I can see in Carter. He didn't have to be here. He wasn't off somewhere, you know, like doing whatever he wanted to do. Now, maybe his mother made him come. I don't know. But he was there. He was engaged. He was obviously, like, happy to be doing what he was doing, to be a part of something that was big. And that's what it takes. And I want to make sure that I connect with Carter in the next few days or so and tell him what a great job that he did. But here, I want to show you somebody else. This is Dallas. And if you could zoom in on her name tag, it says, The Great Dallas. So obviously, she knows something about her future. The Great Dallas. And, and what you have here is, you see all those boxes? Hey, when I was up on the third floor, the elevator door opened, and here two people came out of the elevator. And the, the second person was an adult friend of mine. I will not mention his name because uh, he was probably doing what I would have done anyway. He was following her as she was pulling this giant cart of boxes. Like you remember pictures of Egypt and building the pyramids. That's, that's what it looked like. She's dragging this cart, even more boxes than you can see there. But she had a smile on her face. She was excited. She was stacking up the boxes that were left over from the resource center, getting ready to ship them back to Chicago. And she was just so excited. And Dallas is just great. And her energy and her effort was just like a shining light. I'm going to connect with Dallas in the next few days and tell her what a great job that she was doing. She is a future leader wherever she goes. The great Dallas Carter with the big smile on his face. Who is right around the corner from you right now? Who is on the edge of your life right now that you could either look past, look over, look beyond, or who you could spend table 18 two minutes with and maybe change the rest of their life? lives.
We all owe huge debts of thanks to the people who planted leadership seeds in us, Heibel said. We all, I'm here because people planted leadership seeds in me when I was a little kid. You're here, wherever you are, maybe you're in business. Maybe you're in some you know, calling that, that changes people's lives. Maybe you, you work hard every day in a profession that you wouldn't be in unless somebody was there to kind of bring you on early on. He said, we should all write letters to those people. This is a simple thing. It's a simple lesson. It's not rocket science. But I remember writing a letter to my high school football coach about maybe eight years ago. And I just, I reflected on his, his building into my life one day. And so I'm going to write Coach Santorini a letter. And I was so glad I did that when a few years later, he went home to be with the Lord. It just made me thankful that he was in my life and that I took the time to express gratitude. So the first two lessons coming out of the summit this year, very simple lessons. Where is there a possible table 18 moment for two minutes that's right there in front of you this week where you can say, that's the young person that I'm going to build leadership into. That's the young person that I'm going to encourage. I'm going to tell them how great they are for what they're doing with their life. And I really see the impact that they're going to have on so many more people in the future because I can see it in them today. Or who gets your letter this week? That person that planted a seed of professionalism in you, a seed of ministry in you, a seed of encouragement in you that makes you the person that you are today. Write that letter. Take that table 18 two minutes. Now, the other part of what Hybels was talking about in his first address at the summit was this. He asked this question. How do we leaders lead in an era of divisions and disrespect? How do we lead in an era of divisions and disrespect? And as I looked at the TV last night, and I saw the events that took place in Charlottesville, uh, my heart was just burdened, just burdened. Like, how can this be? How can this be? As I read the, the headline in this weekend's Wall Street Journal, tensions over Jerusalem shrine. Tensions over Jerusalem shrine. Doesn't even make any sense. Here's a shrine. What's a shrine? People go there to pray. People go there to want to connect to God and to hopefully connect with each other. Tensions at Jerusalem Shrine. Six died. Six people died. How do we leaders lead in an era of divisions and disrespect? And, and Bill never talked about this before, but he said we have to get out there and start to write down rules of respect so that everybody knows this is how we will live together. This is how we live together. And it has to begin with the Christian community more than any other community. We are called to this. All these rules are already there in the New Testament, in the Old Testament for us. He cited the, the president of AT&T as a great example of this in the business community. Randall Stevenson called a meeting of his 200,000 employees worldwide, and he spoke these words to them. I'm not asking you to merely tolerate each other. Tolerance is for cowards. Being tolerant requires nothing of you but to be quiet and not make waves, holding tightly to your views and judgments without being challenged. Do not merely tolerate each other. Work hard, 
move into uncomfortable territory and seek to understand each other. And so what he was saying to his business community was, I don't care if you don't like Susie Q. I don't care if you don't like Jimmy Joe Bob. I don't care if you don't like Frank. I don't care if you don't like Steve. I don't care if you don't like Susan. You have a responsibility to love and to respect and to care and to appreciate and to lift up. And you have a, a, a responsibility, an emotional responsibility, a spiritual responsibility to take the initiative to understand each other, not to let divisions come in, into the workplace, not to let divisions come relationally into your, into your team. He talked a lot about having a written code of respect and how they've, they've sort of pounded that out at Willow Creek. Here's two items from their written code of respect at Willow Creek. How to have spirited conversations without drawing blood. We have to learn how to have spirited conversations without drawing blood. And a lot of times that blood gets drawn in the meeting after the meeting. A lot of times that blood gets drawn when you're talking to somebody on the phone late at night or when you're te texting something like, can you believe what she said? How to have spirited conversations without drawing blood. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to have different opinions. It's okay to weigh in hard, but to do that with love and respect. And another one is set volume limits, which maybe I should be doing on myself right now. Set volume limits. No incendiary words, no words that, that are trying to burn things up and burn things down. When we are willing to do these, these two-minute moments at table 18 of grabbing somebody's life and changing them, when we are willing to write rules of respect and have written codes of conduct and affirm them with each other, the world is going to be a better place. And God says to us, as men and women who follow Christ. Do this. Change the world in these ways. Shel Sandberg. Uh, she wrote a book a couple years ago called Lean In. She was interviewed by Hybels. Uh, that Lean In book was a, a strong book. It, it was written really to women telling them, lean in. Use your leadership. Use your influence. Lean in there. Make a difference. And then something very, very different happened in her life, and she talked about that in the interview. Let's take a look at Cheryl Sandberg. One of the most influential and admired leaders in Silicon Valley, widely credited as the leader behind Facebook's transformation from a cash-poor social phenomenon to a profitable internet powerhouse, Cheryl Sandberg is consistently ranked near the top of the list of Fortune's most powerful women in business. She served as Google's Vice President of Online Sales and Operations and as Chief of Staff for U.S. Treasury Secretary before joining Facebook. In a broad-ranging interview, her session will explore her leadership at Facebook, her counterintuitive thoughts about gender in the workforce, and poignant insights into resilience from her new book, Option B. In the interview, Hybels used these four words, grace for the mess, grace for the mess, because he's referring to what she had to go through in her life that was a huge messy moment in her life and the grace that she needed to move through that time. So often we see just the surface of people. On the surface, Sheryl Sandberg looks successful, smart, and as secure as they can get. But here's what she said. You go to Mexico with your husband, 
He goes to the gym. He never comes back. He's 40 years old. Goes to the gym. He should come back. He's 40 years old. Goes on vacation to have a special time with his family. He should come back, but he doesn't. He dies. And it's a big mess for Sheryl Sandberg. All of a sudden, all that lean-in stuff seems to just drift away, and she is flying into another universe. She said the grief was overwhelming. The grief felt like it would never end. And she offered three understandings to have in response to grief. And I'm going to give these to you pretty quick. I'm going to do a whole message about grief sometime in the fall or in the, in the winter because there's just so much here and I think it, it relates to all of us in so many ways. But here are her three responses to grief. Personalization. She says, at first, you blame yourself. I should have been there. I should have been in the gym with them. I could have done CPR. I, maybe I'm, I'm his wife. I should have known. I should have seen the signs that he wasn't well, that he, was, he needed medical attention for his heart that was not working the way it should work. I should have paid attention and known him better. You personalize it. Pervasiveness. Now, everything is terrible in my life. My whole life has fallen apart. It's, it's, it's over. It's never going to be the same. It is broken, broken, broken. It's messy, messy, messy. What do I do now? It's just pervasive. Your response to grief, grief is pervasive. And then permanence. It doesn't feel like it will ever go away. It doesn't feel like it will ever go away. It's always going to be like this. This dark cloud has descended upon me. It's never going to go away, but it will, but it will. And she said, this is, this is how it works for me. And she offered this to each and every one of us as a way to bring joy back into your life. Not joy that is maybe overwhelming or spectacular or like fireworks, but this is what she said. At the end of every day, Write down three moments of joy. Just simple. So keep it as simple as possible. She offered several. I'm going to give you two of hers and one of mine. Her first moment of joy. My coffee tasted great. Just simple. Simple moment. You know, you, you sometimes have that in the morning when, when that cup of coffee is just somehow it's incrementally better than, than the one from yesterday or the week before. And you go, wow, that just was a great tasting cup of coffee. My daughter gave me a hug. My daughter gave me a hug. Maybe your daughter's three, maybe your daughter's 23, maybe your daughter's 43. It doesn't matter. You got a hug from your kid, and that's a moment of joy. And here's mine. I sat around a table with people who love me. I sat around a table with people who love me. She says, you do this every day, these simple moments, and it starts to build a quiet joy back into your life. It's the grace for the mess, and it finally starts to get better. She talked about going out on the dance floor with a friend at some event, and how she broke down crying and had to leave the room and somebody went to her and said, Cheryl, you, you deserve still to have joy in your life. And she's, she's doing that. And somebody said, Cheryl, it could have been so much worse. 
He could have had the heart attack while he was in the car driving your kids somewhere. And so she begins to turn her mind. And this is the quote that I'll remember from her. She said, I don't sweat the small stuff as much. She's a CEO kind of a person, working on a lot of things all the time, working with a lot of people all the time, with a lot of things on the board that have to be worried about. She goes, I don't sweat the small stuff as much. Andy Stanley has spoken at the Global Leadership Summit five times now, and he talked about something called uniquely better, uniquely better. And he asked a great question. Here's the question. If we had it to do all over again, what would we do all over again? You see, when his church started about 20-some years ago, they were new. They were the new kids on the street down there in Atlanta, and they were doing things way different than anybody had ever done before, much like Spring Branch, much like Willow Creek Community Church. And, and there was always excitement every day, and there was change every day, and there was new people coming every day, and new staff every day, and new people in the congregation every day. And, and so now it's, it's over two decades later, and it's kind of, he said it's kind of slowed down some. And so it's time for us to ask the question. If we had it to do all over again, what would we do all over again? And then he made these two statements that are absolutely brilliant. One, every industry has a set of shared assumptions, whether it's um, the racing in this, at NASCAR, whether it's any other kind of sport, whether it's a medical industry, whether it's educational field, whether it's the legal field, whether it's churches, whatever it is, there's a, there's a set of shared assumptions. In other words, this is how it works. This is how we know it works. This is how we think it's going to work. This is what we think the outcomes are going to be. And we've kind of like been around this block a whole bunch of times. And so we all kind of share these assumptions together. And they said this, every industry is stuck because of shared assumptions. Every industry is stuck. The church can be stuck. Your office can be stuck. Your medical practice can be stuck. Your, your team, your sports team can be stuck. Right now, the Yankees are stuck, you know, I have to admit it. But you know, you've got this, this thing going on where because you've done this so many times, you just don't know anymore what you could be missing. And he said, we've got to get to the place where we can see and begin to embrace what is uniquely better. And when you start to do this, whether it's in your office, whether it's in your family, whether it's in... In the church, you start to give the opportunity for something new to happen. New life comes in. You start to breathe again instead of being suffocated in your stuckness. He said, do this. Replace how with wow. He said, you can how an idea right out the door. Ask the H word, all the creative juices go away. In order to, to move with how instead of wow, he said, you have to ask the uniquely better questions. There's four. Number one, is this unique? Is it really new or is it just something that we, we did before and we kind of know how it works? It's part of the, the shared assumptions. Is this unique? Two, what would make it unique? If it's not, like, what do you have to do to make it something that's totally different? Number three, is it better? Is it better than everything that we've done before in our family, in our business? In our church, and number four, and this kind of plays off on number three, is it better really? Are we just playing a game here? Are we just going around the same bush over and over and over again? Is it better really? And he said, if you start to be people of wow, 
rather than people of how things will start to move, things will start to shift, things will start to change. In other words, somebody comes with an idea and instead of going how and thinking about money and thinking about you know, the resources and thinking about, well, we're going to now hire two more people to do that. You just go, wow, that's a great idea. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Be people of wow in your home. Be people of wow in your business. Be people of wow here in the church. Now, I have to admit, a lot of times I'm a person of how. How are we going to do that? How are we going to get there? How are we, we don't have the, the, the resources. We would need that person to get hired who would have all those gifts. And, and I'm saying to myself, don't do that. Don't how an idea right out the door. Let's wow it into the meeting. Let's wow it onto the table. And let's, let's look at it. doesn't cost anything to do that. And he made this great statement right at the end. Nothing is gained by not knowing what your people or your kids are dreaming about. Sit with that for a while. Nothing is gained by not knowing what your people or your kids are dreaming about. And that costs us nothing. Laszlo Bach, who was with Google for many years, told a story. This is all I'm going to do with, with Laszlo and make a couple quick statements. I really liked Laszlo and what he was talking about. Um, he told a story about Nike and, and Nike manufacturing t-shirts outside the country. So Nike t-shirt plant A, they go there and they show them how it works to manufacture t-shirts. They had the whole training program. This is how you do it. Here's the stuff. You do this. Here's the machinery. You do that. And this plant A manufacturers 80 t-shirts a day per person they go to t-shirt plant b and they say you got it we're just giving this to you you figure we think you have the the smarts to figure this out we're giving you the freedom to figure this out and just let us know how you do you know with the t-shirts t-shirt plan b manufactures 150 t-shirts per day per person 150 versus 80 you know if you're a business person you already see the big win what was the only difference and he studied this all over the world and the only difference the only the one thing he said that worked every single time was to give people more freedom to give people more freedom now when you give people more freedom sure you take some risks you give people more freedom People are going to make some mistakes. Give people more, more freedom. You are losing a measure of control, and that doesn't feel good. And so that's why he said this. If you're not uncomfortable, you're doing it wrong. If you're not uncomfortable, you're doing it wrong. Quick story I told in the early service uh, that relates to this. I heard this a long time ago. They go into a nursing home. There's floor, first floor, second floor. They give an aquarium to the first floor day room. They say, we're giving you a new aquarium, all these wonderful fish to look at. The staff's going to take care of it. Please enjoy your new aquarium. They go to the second floor. We're giving you a new aquarium. You have to take care of the fish. You have to feed the fish. You've got to clean this thing out. You have to figure out a schedule. It's up to you to be responsible for the aquarium. They go away. 
90 days goes by, or maybe 120 days goes by, six months go by, and they do a study. Second floor population where they had to take care of the aquarium, they got sick less often than the first floor population. And when they did get sick on the second floor, they got better quicker than the first floor population. What was the difference? Taking care of the aquarium. When we give personal responsibility, think about your kids and, and start to feel uncomfortable, right? Think about your kids. It's like when you give more autonomy, commensurate with age level and all that stuff, but when you give the autonomy, when you let people figure it out, when Travis and Nina and the girls were, were in Ocracoke this summer, and we went down there, and I saw how Travis was like, he was like the general pattern of every single day. He had it all mapped out. There was a big board. We're doing this. We're going here. We're doing this. And I said, Travis, how about you let the girls plan a day? It was like this giant light just showing up. How about you let the girls plan a day? The girls are 10, 8, 4, and 2. Travis said, yeah, Dad, that sounds like a good idea. So the next week, he goes, That's, this is the day, Dad. We're going to let the girls plan the day. They did a marvelous job planning the day. The day was better than any day that he planned all summer. Ten years old, eight years old, four years old, two years old. Give them some autonomy. If you're not uncomfortable, you're doing it wrong. Here's the question. Where's your plant be? Where you just say, okay, you guys, you guys do it. Where do you want to get higher level production? Where do you want to just kind of shift gears and, and try something and be uncomfortable? What's your plan B move in your business, with your family, with your future? Where's your plan B? Great story. Juliet Funt. Juliet Funt was my, I always call a, a, a speaker, my sleeper speaker. This is a person I expect nothing from, and then they dump the truck on me. Juliet Funt, uh, her father was the originator of Candid Camera. Remember him? Uh, that's her father. If you know that, I'm not going to say, but... Juliet Funt, uh, and her, her big question was, where's your white space? Where's your white space? She said this, our days have become 100% exertion and 0% thoughtfulness. Look at that. Our days have become 100% exertion and 0% thoughtfulness. Jack Welch, the the great CEO of General Electric who, who just transformed that company, used to take an hour a day, she said, to just look out the window because that's when some of his best thoughts would show up. We are too busy to become less busy, she said. We are too busy to become less busy. In other words, we've got so much going on, we don't have the time to think about not doing stuff. What are the costs of worshiping the false god of busyness. And this is where it just like hits me hard. Boom. I've got to think about this. I've got to figure this out. She talked about th thieves of white space, drive, excellence, information, which becomes information overload and activity, which is like you're doing everything for everybody all the time and you're not just saying no anymore. She talked about white, white space questions. Is there anything I can let go of where is good enough, good enough? What do I truly need to know? I can't know everything. Too many channels coming at me all the time. I can do leadership development for the rest of my life now and never come out of my office, and I don't want to do that. 
What do I truly need to know? What deserves my attention? What really deserves my focus? What really deserves an investment of my time and energy? Because there's going to be a strategic difference that emanates from that. White space. I deal with this all the time. I'm creating a white space moment this week, though. Wednesday night, Yankees, Mets, City Field, Flushing, New York. I'll be there. First row on third base in the second deck. If a foul ball comes about four feet out here, I'm going for it. If you hear Pastor Falls out of second deck at City Field, that's me. Here's, here's some interesting things that she commented on. If you invite 14 people to a meeting, reduce that. You can't have 14 people in a meeting. It's too many people. Then everybody wants to say something and people start to repeat things. It's not that we're bad people or that we're wrong. It's just the way it is. If you invite 14 people to a meeting, you got to reduce that. Here's, here's, here's a tough one. If your church staff think every congregational idea has to be acted upon, reduce it. If everybody sitting here had an idea for improving something at the church, and they're all different ideas, think about it. How many could we do? How many should we do? I'll tell you how many we should do. We should do every single one that God says, this is what I'm doing. I spoke something through that person. I spoke something through him, through her. Listen to that. This is where discernment of the Holy Spirit becomes so important because when the world becomes just a lot of different things, you end up really not doing anything that's of any significance. So we've got to think about those things. She said, if you get invited to a lot of events, reduce birthday parties, baby dedications, uh, showers, weddings, all kinds of things you get invited to all the time. She says, you can't do it. Otherwise, your life is constantly just, I do this, I do this, I, I take care of this person, I take care of that person. It's not right. It's not healthy for you. It's not good for them. You're really not doing anything but spinning your wheels relationally. Reduce. So here's the question. Where's your white space next week? Where is it? I'll be in New York. Marcus Buckingham. I call this 52. He led off with this. All unhappy marriages have one thing in common. They argue a lot. Everybody sort of chuckled. And he said this. All happy marriages have one thing in common. They argue a lot. Here's the deal. He says, the difference, the space between the fights. That's the difference. The space between the fights. Because he says all people want just two things. Everybody in this room, we just want two things. Make me feel part of something bigger than me. Make me feel part of something bigger than me. Call me to something big. Make me feel special. Look me in the eye. Let me know that it means something, that I'm here, that I can bring something that is, is appreciated and understood. And he used that word, the, the number 52, in this way. A year is 52 little sprints. That's all a year is. 52 little sprints. This week is one more of those 52 sprints. It starts maybe tonight when you start thinking about tomorrow morning. The alarm goes off. And, and you've got a week. And, and then next Sunday, here we are. And you had, you had one of 52 sprints. And you've got to win most of them. 
You got to get it done. And you have to do that with a sense of understanding that you need to be called to something bigger than yourself and you want to feel special and everybody around you feels the same way. What's the difference in life? It's the space between the fights as you sprint 52 times really hard to make something happen. Great talk by Marcus Buckingham. Angela Duckworth, she talked about grit. If you, if you can read one book this summer or you want one book on my recommendation from the summit, grit, the power of passion and perseverance, the power of passion and perseverance. And she says, grit is sustained passion and perseverance for especially long-term goals, especially long-term goals, passion and perseverance. You never give up. Grit is predictive of being better. In other words, she's studied this up and down and around from all sides. She's looked at West Point cadets. Talent fades. Achievement is not really a predictor. Past achievement, current talent, these are not predictors of long-term success. The only thing that she could find in all of her research was, was grit. She calls it grit. It's the passion, sustained passion and perseverance for especially long-term goals. How do you get grit? Allow me to read you a quick section of her book. In my second year of graduate school, I sat down to a weekly meeting with my advisor, Marty. I was more than a little nervous. Marty has that effect on people, especially his students. Then in his 60s, Marty had won just about every accolade psychology has to offer. Marty is barrel-chested and baritone-voiced. He may study happiness and well-being, but cheerful is not a word I'd use to describe him. In the middle of whatever it was I was saying, a report on what I'd done in the past week, I suppose, or the next steps in one of our research studies, Marty interrupted. You haven't had a good idea in two years. I stared at him, open-mouthed, trying to process what he just said. Then I blinked. Two years? I hadn't even been in graduate school for two years. Silence. Then he crossed his arms, frowned, and said, you can do all kinds of fancy statistics. You somehow get every parent in a school to return their consent form. You've made a few insightful observations, but you don't have a theory. You don't have a theory for the psychology of achievement. Stop reading. Stop reading so much and go think. I left his office, went into mine, and cried. At home with my husband, I cried more. I cursed Marty under my breath and aloud as well for being such a jerk. Why was he telling me that what I was, what I was doing was wrong? Why wasn't he praising me for what I was doing right? Those words rattled around in my mind for days. Finally, I dried my tears, stopped cursing, and sat down at my computer. I opened the word processor and started, stared at the blinking cursor, realizing I hadn't gotten far beyond the basic observation that talent was not enough to succeed in life. She writes this whole amazing story and theory of grit that changes the way people think all over the world. She's got one of those uh, YouTube uh, TED Talk things that gazillion people have watched. She's, she's here, she's there, she's everywhere. She's talking at the leadership summit. And you know why? Because somebody made her cry. Because somebody stood up and got her face and said, you're not doing it. And you don't get grit 
without being pushed somewhere by somebody. You don't get grit unless somebody says, you got to be better than you are. And when you stop crying is when you start getting better. Grit is always predictive of being better. Gary Hagan was the last speaker. He's the CEO of the International Justice Mission. And when he said this, I couldn't believe it. There are 46 million slaves in the world today. 46 million slaves. More than at any time in human history. And I thought, today, 46 million slaves? More than ever? And this is why I call this the force don't be with you. Because he said there's a force in life that can render everything completely useless. There's a force in life that, that just makes everything go south and you end up with slavery and you end up with all kinds of crazy things going on. He said that force is fear. Fear destroys the love of the dream and replaces it with protection of the self. And that at the heart of all human behavior is what brings things down. When we let go of the dream that God's given us, we replace it with protection of self, nothing goes anywhere good. You think you're going to get to heaven one day and you have created this bubble around yourself and you made it through and you got through and you're going to go, God, here's my bubble. I lived the protective life and I got through. You think God's going to go, great job. He's not. Because it's about a dream that he's given you. It's about a dream he wants you to accomplish. It's about a dream that, that changes the game of life. He told the story of Martin Luther King Jr., and his dream speech, August 28, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. King gets to a point in his message, and, and he gets bogged down, and he stumbles. And there's this pause. Mahalia Jackson calls out from the choir, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And he starts, I have a dream. And he takes off, and he gives a, he gives a speech that changes our culture it changes the future it still flies in the face of of racism today i have a dream the dream that that fear tries to to rob from him and from us it's a, it's a dream that continues to reverberate society and it's never going to go away why because that's what dreams do they change things they change our lives and i'm here today because of a dream I'm here today because of a dream that God gave me a long time ago, a dream that I gave you and you carried it. And that dream still reverberates today in the life of this church and the life of the future of this church. And if you want to have that dream and you want to live that dream and you want to step into that dream, then this is what God is calling, to, calling you to. But you have to descale and you have to go in humility. I can still learn. I can, I can say wow and not how. I can have table 18 moments. I can have my grace in my life for the mess of my life. I can find the uniquely better. I can, I can create plant B where I am in my home, in my work. I can find my white space and have a, have a thought because I take time to look out the window. I can live the, the 52 sprints of the year. I can find the grit that gets me through to the end. And I don't need this force to be with me. That's a force of fear. Because in the end, you want to test yourself. You want to examine yourself to see if Jesus Christ is really in you. So you don't fail the test. It's all about humility and learning. And I want to be humble. And I want to learn and grow with you because of the dream.
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us this time today. Thank you for giving us challenge and giving us opportunity. Thank you for giving us grace for the mess and hope for the future. Father, guide us into all these things that we might bring your glory to the earth, your love to people. In Jesus' name, amen. Our teenagers, our, our student ministry is having a, a dog days fundraiser out there. If you can go out there and see them on the way out under the tent, that'd be great. Don't miss next week. Next week we have Connor Clark speaking on the prodigal generation. Connor grew up in this church. Uh, just I'm so proud of him and what he's doing in his life and ministry. Now at William and Mary as a campus chaplain up there with InterVarsity. So be here uh, to hear Connor and hear his heartbeat and hear what he has to say. It's going to be a great Sunday. The week after that, we're going to have Chesney Barrick with Orphan Network speak in our summer Bible study series. Two great Sundays to be here for. So I want to thank you so much for everything you do. Would you please stand with me? Father, give us the passion. Give us the grit. Give us the vision. Give us the dream. As we go out of these doors, allow us the purpose again to be your servants in your way for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We give you our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Good day and God bless you.